for people who are listening, how would you suggest that they apply the framework jobs to be done? So what we're trying to do is to get out of solution space and say, okay, let's look at this through the lens of the customer. Instead of having ideas and hoping they address unmet needs, let's uncover all the unmet needs, prioritize them, know that they're unmet, and then come up with solutions that address those unmet needs. Hello and welcome to Polyweb. I'm your host, Sara Landi Tortoli, and my guest today is Tony Olvik, the legendary inventor of the jobs to be done and the outcome-driven innovation framework. During our conversation, Tony explains why defining jobs to be done is essential to the success of every company and lays out how to implement it step by step. Would you be willing to go through an example of application of Jobs Vidan based on the example of Twitter and what you did there? Yeah, I'd be happy to uh, talk about that. Tony, welcome to Polyweb. Sarah, thanks for inviting me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. First thing first, I love to introduce you for, for listeners who don't know you. Tony is the popular inventor of this framework that is called Jobs to be Done. And I would like to ask you, Tony, what was happening in your life? What were you going through when you invented this framework? Yeah. Well, like many product managers, I was going through product failure. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. <laughs> and and it, was, it, it wasn't fun, right? It wasn't much fun. So this was back in the 1980s. It was my first product. I was working with IBM. And we were working on a product called the PC Junior, which was going after Apple in the home computer market. It's when this all first began, you know, way back then. And the PC Junior was supposed to take over the world, right? It's going to be the, the first really widespread used home computer. And we worked on it diligently for years. Uh, we put it out in the market in 1984. And the day after it was introduced, the headlines in the Wall Street Journal read, the PC Junior is a flop. <laughs> And it was. And of course, we didn't know that it was. And it took about a year for us to agree that, yeah, that that didn't work very well. It was a, a billion dollar failure on IBM's part. And what really got me was the fact that, that they called it the day after and said, hey, this is a flop. And I thought, well, how do they know that so quickly? Right? What, what criteria were they using to judge the value of that product? And clearly, that wasn't the criteria we were using to build the product, right? So I, I just started thinking, you know, if we could only know the metrics that people are going to use to judge the value of our products way in advance, we could create the products to meet those metrics and we'd have a winning product. So that was the, the thought and the hope. But it then took me a number of years to figure out how to make that a possibility. And I was on a business trip. I was kind of like an internal consultant at IBM for a number of years trying to figure this out. And I was um, on a gig, as we call it, in uh, Australia. And it occurred to me that Levitt's quote, you've heard the quote, people don't want the quarter-inch drill, they want the quarter-inch hole. I had seen that quote a million times, but it occurred to me that we have an option of studying, instead of studying the product and how to make a better drill, let's study the process of creating a quarter-inch hole. And as a engineer, I have a mechanical engineering background, that was really appealing to me because I thought, well, if, if, if we think about that as a process that people are trying to execute, we could go to people and talk to them about that process and figure out how they judged 
value and success when executing that process. And sure enough, that worked. That's exactly what was the, you know, the initial mindset that shifted the focus from the product being the unit of analysis to the underlying process, as I called it then, being the unit of analysis. And that was the start of it. Amazing. So maybe for listeners, you know, who are not familiar with the framework, uh, now that we got the background, uh, maybe you could tell us what jobs to be done it's all about. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the story as it unfolded, right? Because jobs be done came after uh, 10 years after the process I put together that I just described where we could focus on the underlying process. So I left IBM in 1991 and started Stratagen and started applying that concept to uh, products out there with my client base. And one of the first ones I worked with was Cordis Corporation. And we studied the job of, of uh, restoring blood flow to an artery. Uh, we talked to interventional cardiologists and broke down the process, broke down the steps, gathered a set of outcomes. I'll describe all what this means here in a little bit. And, and we prioritized them out in the field. We determined which of those needs were unmet. Uh, we did ideation, focusing specifically on the top 15 unmet needs. And a year and a half later, they introduced a line of products, 19 of them, all of which were number one or two in the market. Their market share went from less than 2% to over 20%. And their stock price climbed from, I believe it was $16 to $108 over a short period of time thereafter. So it was really a, a, a great success. And I applied it in a number of different industries from 1991 until about 2002, when I wrote my first HBR article. So that was published in 2002. But in the meantime, in 1999, after reading Clay Christensen's book, The Innovator's Dilemma, I thought, well, this is a pretty good solution to The Innovator's Dilemma. And I, I called up Clay Christensen's office and saw if I you know, try to get a, a meeting with him. And he happily accepted being the, the nice guy that he is. And so I introduced this concept to him. It was the process, right? Let's study the underlying process people are executing, define needs as metrics that people use to measure success, look for those metrics that are underserved or overserved, find segments of people with different limit needs, and then build out your strategy and so on. So he, he really liked the, the, the concept. And we spoke for a few years about this. And when he was writing his book, The Innovator Solution, he introduced the concept. But he didn't talk about the underlying process people were executing. He called it the underlying job, right? So it was the job that people were trying to get done. And I remember sitting in his office when he told me he was going to go down that path. He says, you know, the concept's great, but underlying process doesn't sound really exciting. You know, why don't we say the underlying job people are trying to get done? I said, yeah, that, that, that really sounds great. So in his book in 2002, that's how we described it. And he didn't describe it as a theory, really, at that point. He just said, hey, let's focus on the job people are trying to get done. Let's make that the unit of analysis. And Clay, of course, extraordinarily popular with his books and his other theories, really helped to popularize the concept of jobs be done. But I have to say, it wasn't immediate. It was just slow and evolving. So that was back in 2002. And then fast forward to about 2000, I guess it was 2005, Clay wrote an article in HBR about jobs to be done. 
and he wrote a book on it in 2016. And I think my second book was around 2016 as well. And it was around that time frame that the concept really started taking off. And so I'd, I'd say that you know, Clay's influence in the space really helped to popularize the, the concept around the globe. I find it so fascinating, the process that you went through. I thought, you know, prior to like starting looking and preparing for this interview, I had uh, no idea that it took you years uh, to actually develop this framework and test it out and, and get it out to market. So for, for people who are listening, how would you suggest that they apply the framework jobs to be done? Well, so I'd say, you know, start right from the beginning. And, you know, I, I view jobs to be done really as a perspective. Right? It's, a, it's a lens that you can look through and start seeing the world of innovation a bit differently, the way you define customers and markets and needs and segments and so on. So at a very high level, when you start applying it, uh, it's, it's almost like we're going through marketing 101 exercise but through a problem lens, not a solution lens, right? So we're going to define a market, right? But we're not going to define a market as a product or a technology. Since people, since people buy products to get a job done, let's define a market as a group of people and the job they're trying to get done. Pretty reasonable, right? Yeah. So sounds, sounds simple enough. And it's very difficult. But it's very difficult. Well, it's different, right? So, you know, people say, hey, I'm in, I'm in the semiconductor market or... I'm in the cardiovascular market, or I'm I'm in the legal market, or they define it, or I'm in the Brazilian market, or they define it through many different ways, as geographies, as verticals, as use cases, as, you know, you could go on and on. And most of those other ways of thinking about markets put you in solution space. So what we're trying to do is to get out of solution space and say, okay, let's look at this through the lens of the customer. They're trying to get a job done. All right, there's a group of people trying to get a job done. That's the market. All right, so once we agree on that, and that's not always easy, then, then we can say, okay, now that we know that there's a group of people trying to get a job done, let's go uncover all the metrics they use to measure success from getting the job done. So like the interventional cardiologist trying to restore blood flow in an artery, for example. One outcome might be, you know, minimize the time it takes to reach the lesion or minimize the likelihood of overshooting the lesion or minimize the likelihood of, of going in a side vessel when navigating through a tortuous vessel, for example. And there's a, so there's a whole series of metrics that they're using to judge success as they go through that procedure. If we can un uncover all those metrics, then we can go to the third step of the process, which is to quantify them. Because we're looking for unmet needs, right? We've picked the market. We know the needs. Now we've got to figure out which are unmet. We could guess at it, but why do that? Right? Let's just build a survey, put it out in front of customers, and ask them, you know, which of these needs are important to you but not well satisfied? Simple enough. We're saying if a need, what are those outcomes? If you're trying to minimize the time it takes to make your way through a torturous vessel and you struggle to do it, then if we could help you do that faster, more conveniently, then that would be adding value to getting the job done better, right? So that's what we're trying to figure out. So we've all, there's often a hundred or so metrics that people use to judge success. Um, once we've uh, quantified them, and, and again, through a survey that could go out to the customer population, 
we begin to analyze the data and we're looking for those outcomes that are really important and not well satisfied. So this becomes the most efficient path to growth, this is the way I like to say it, in problem space. So you can imagine, you know, here's all the here's all the metrics people are using to measure success in priority order. And if you could knock off the top 10 or 15 outcomes and get and address them very effectively, the product that you've just conceptualized is near, near certain to win in the market, right? What we're trying to do is put the odds in our favor as the innovator, right? Instead of, and you said this right up front, instead of having ideas and hoping they address unmet needs, let's uncover all the unmet needs, prioritize them, know that they're unmet, and then come up with solutions that address those unmet needs. So all this is knowable, right, in problem space. So I have a couple of follow-up questions. Sure. So first of all, I got curious, uh, when you were saying about the survey, do you do you have a particular ways to structure it? Uh, um, and how do you distribute it then? Do you have a particular technique also to incentivize people to answer it? Because I, I used to launch surveys. Uh, the problem is always how do you incentivize people to take the survey? And uh, is there a minimum number of responses that you're looking to? So how does it work? Sure. Yeah. So there's a whole science there uh, that we've evolved over the years. You know, we see a lot of researchers say, hey, you can't ask customers 100 questions. <laughs> and so they don't even attempt to prioritize the customer's needs. But uh, we've developed techniques that make this very efficient. And uh, we, I'll answer the sample size question first. You said how many people? It, it depends on the market. But in most B2B markets, 180 people is, is, is enough. Uh, we generally go as low as 120. Um, uh, but in some markets, we're, like, we're working with a client that has only three customers. Uh, so in that case, you want to get input from all three customers. Even two out of three is pretty good, but three would be fine. That's, that's the universe, right? But in B2C, you, you generally have sample sizes anywhere from 600 to well over 1,000. And it depends on a variety of things. If you have a single product getting the job done, then the sample size could be a bit lower. But if you have a portfolio of products, like we work with a company that makes butter, for example, they have a dozen products, butter products, that go after different segments of the market. So in that case, you might require you know, 1,200 or, or more people that you're going to interview. The most we ever did was when we did work with Twitter, we had a sample size of 14,000 people. <laughs> Because they wanted to slice that a lot of a lot of different ways to to answer a number of different questions, but so that gives you an idea of the range, right? So, you know, it, it depends. But generally speaking, for ease of use, 180 B to B, 600 B to C, and then it comes down to you know, how do you organize the questions in a survey? So uh, we've been through well over a thousand iterations of survey creation, and uh, the way we organize it. Uh, is it's extraordinarily efficient. Uh, we have each step in the job with the outcomes listed on a page, and the user only sees one page at a time. So they'll look at one step in the job, rate the importance and satisfaction of each outcome for that statement. And we have the leading questions that prepare them for answering it correctly in the right mindset. And then we go on to the next page. So it may take them 20 minutes to go through the survey. They can 
put it away for a minute. They can come back later. They can come back tomorrow. They can finish it. And so we make it convenient for them to get through, you know, a 20 minute survey or so. The other thing we do is we pay them. So to incentivize them, many people in the B2B space love taking these surveys. I can, and I can tell you why it's because they see often for the first time, the job that they are hired to do laid out in meticulous detail, right? It's very informative to them and interesting to them. So our completion rates are actually quite good, given the fact that the the surveys are, are quite long. So I think those are some of the key factors. Do you have any other follow-up questions on survey creation? Yeah, like in specific, what type of question do you ask that helps you the most uh, during the survey or, or particular ways that you phrase it, you know, yeah. that you phrase a question that helps you the most uh, get yeah. out uh, an honest answer from yeah. from potential users. Sure. So the way we lay it out is we'll say when executing this job step, so we'll label the job steps when trying to access the lesion, for example, mm-hmm. how important is it to you that you're able to, in the, the outcome statement, minimize the time it takes to reach the lesion and then how satisfied are you with your ability to minimize the time it takes to reach the lesion, right? So it's keeping people in, in problem space the whole time, mm-hmm. right? Then we go on to the next question. You know, how important is it to you that you minimize the likelihood of inadvertently going down a side vessel? Okay. And how satisfied are you with your ability to minimize the likelihood of going down a side vessel? Okay. Right? All right. Okay. So we, and we do them side by side like that just like I'm saying it. And we've studied this in the old days. We we would have people go through and answer the importance for every outcome and then come back and do the satisfaction from every outcome. But we found that by putting them side by side and organizing them job step by job step, people get through them much more quickly. There's better discrimination and uh, less fallout. Okay. And how do the answer look like? Like, is it like on a scale from one to 10? Is it instead like from like a satisfied, very satisfied, unsatisfied? Like, how does it look like? Yeah. So it goes from not important at all, somewhat important, important, very important, extremely important. Um, And we do the same thing on satisfaction, not satisfied at all, somewhat satisfied, satisfied, very satisfied, extremely satisfied. And so what we're looking for when we prioritize the needs, uh, we're looking for needs that are very or extremely important, but not very or extremely satisfied. And we'll call those needs unmet. So that's why we organize it in that fashion. Okay. That was my second question, actually. So perfect. But let's say that you have some unmet needs that are kind of equally important, uh, you know? How do you prioritize them? Well, so let's say you had two needs uh, of equal importance and, and satisfaction. And the way we do it is we put in, in an opportunity algorithm. So just very quickly, we say the opportunity is importance plus importance minus satisfaction. And what we're doing is we're, we're taking the percent of the population that's saying an outcome is important and then subtracting you know, the percent of people that's saying it's not very or extremely satisfied. So you could have 80% of the population saying, hey, this is very or extremely important, but only 30% are saying it's very or extremely satisfied. Right? So uh, the calculation is importance plus importance minus satisfaction. And the reason we're doing that, we're, 
basically was saying, if a need is important, but the difference between the importance and satisfaction is great, that makes it an unmet need. And the more important it is, and the bigger that gap is, the bigger the opportunity is for value creation. Okay, got it. Uh-huh, interesting. I heard you say that you you helped Twitter in the early days, kind of segmenting their users. Uh, would you be willing to to go through an example of application of jobs to be done based on the example of Twitter and what you did there? Because Twitter sure. is something that most users are, most listeners are absolutely familiar with. Everyone knows it. So I think it'll be absolutely crystal clear how to properly implement the framework. Yeah, I'd be happy to uh, talk about that. Uh, in fact, I, th I think there, there was an article published in Harvard Business Review just a year or two ago about the work that was done at Twitter, but we, we weren't uh, noted as the, the vendor or the supplier that was that did the work. Uh, okay, we we'll link it. We'll so, find it at the article, and we can link it also in the description. But I love to yeah. your, you know, your experience there. Yeah, uh, it was really very interesting. You know, people buy products to get jobs done, right? So, what is the job that people hire Twitter for? Well, I, I, the, fir the first thing you'd recognize is that they're hiring the product to get many jobs done, right? So, if you go out and talk to customers. They say, you know, I'm, I'm trying to keep in touch with friends. I don't want to stay up on a topic. I, I want to harass somebody I don't like. I want to, you know, in that we came up with over 200 different reasons, if you will, that people hire Twitter. So the first question we wanted to ask is, well, what, what markets does Twitter serve? Because it, it, it's not, it's not serving 150 markets effectively, right? <laughs> so let's figure out is are there higher level jobs that people are trying to execute as that that could be executed on this platform? Right. And and just a little background there too. We we often notice that most products don't get all of all parts of a job done. They just get parts of a job done. And I, I think that's part of the issue with Twitter. That was one of our hypotheses that while it gets parts of many jobs done, it doesn't do any one job exceptionally well, right? Mm -hmm. So so let's discover jobs that could execute exceptionally well. So what we did is we gathered all those reasons why people use Twitter. Let's not call them jobs yet, but, but people view them as jobs, right? Here's, I'm doing it to, you know, stay in touch with people or to promote my ideas or whatever. So we captured all the, that information. And we quantified it. So we asked thousands of Twitter users, uh, which of those applications or, or jobs or whatever you want to call them, uh, were important to them and not well satisfied. Okay. okay. Wait, I'm going to interrupt so, you before you go too far, because like I have questions that are related specific to this, to what you just said, and I don't want okay. you to go too far. So. First of all, how did you came up uh, with the reasons people use Twitter? Was it like a huge brainstorming session? Was it a mix of a brainstorming session and asking users? And if you asked users directly, through which method, you know? Yeah, we, we asked users directly. So we uh, recruited the users. We went through okay. the recruitment process, people who, who use Twitter regularly, people who may use it for multiple reasons. And we spent hours with them, talked to them about the different reasons. Um, I think we interviewed maybe 
two dozen people. Wow. Uh, live interview, not survey. Live interview, qualitative research. And the goal of the qualitative research was just to uncover the list of reasons people use Twitter. Uh -huh. okay. okay. Then we move to the quantitative phase, which I can describe. Oh, yeah, please. Go okay. So, uh, so we have that list. And what we're trying to figure out is which of those reasons are really important to the biggest portion of the population, right? And so we put the survey out. We had people rate customers of users of Twitter, rate the importance and satisfaction of all those different jobs, right? So this is, it's a bit nuanced, but this is more of a market selection study. Like we don't know the market yet. So we're trying to figure out what the market is. What I described to you previously when I was talking about the Cortis example, we knew the market. It was people trying to restore blood flow to an artery. That was the job. So then we go to the outcome level and, and very granular, and we can come up with the product solution. But here with Twitter, before we could go deep on any job, we had to figure out, well, what, what are the main reasons people are using Twitter? Okay. So once we got the data back, uh, we ran a number of analyses. Uh, one analysis is called factor analysis, which groups together uh, items that are rated in a similar fashion, right? Now, what this allows us to do is to group these tasks or jobs into a bigger mega job, right? So we can start analyzing them and we could see that there were really nine core jobs that Twitter users were trying to get done, right? That explained over 90% of use. And one of them was stay informed on a topic of interest. Another one was promote a topic of interest. Another was communicate with others about a topic of interest, right? So those are three that all had a topic of interest in mind. So there were others as well. I'm not going to reveal all of them, but those three were uh, mentioned in that article I had talked about. So those three became the targets, right? They said, okay, if that's what people are using Twitter for, let's go really deep on all three of those markets and understand where people are struggling to get the job done. And so this kind of proved that what we had hypothesized up front, that the platform wasn't getting any one of those jobs done 100%. It was getting pieces of it done, right? It, it would sort of help people promote their ideas, but not in the exact way they wanted to. It was helping people stay current on a topic, but not in, in a complete manner, right? If you get the general idea, right? So it was getting pieces of those three jobs done, and they said, well, we, we want to excel at those three. We'll worry about the other six later. And so we took each of those jobs, uh, like stay informed on a topic of interest. We went back out to customers into a new, another qualitative research phase where we uncovered all the outcomes associated with staying current on a topic of interest. We broke down the job into job steps. We laid out all the outcomes. There's a good article from NHBR back in 2008 called the Customer Centered Innovation Map that lays out the process we use to create the job map. And of course, in my books, we talk about how we state and collect outcomes and so on. But again, at a very granular level, right? Like minimize the likelihood that my message is misunderstood or minimize the likelihood of creating a backlash by making the statement or like very specific things that will happen in 
as, as part of executing the job. So we did that for all three and we helped them develop a strategy to get more of each of those jobs done better. Right. So structurally, we put together a strategy that said, Hey, you're, you're not in 150 markets. You're really in nine of those nine. You're prioritizing these three of these three. Here's where you need to focus to get the job done better. Right. And we laid out that plan for them so they could proceed in a, in a very efficient, effective manner to uh, bring those solutions to market, okay. which of course they never did. <laughs> Oh, they never did. Not to the best of my knowledge. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I was like, I haven't seen those, those yeah. things on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, there, I, I think there might have been a change in ownership somewhere along the way. Ah, okay. So how, I didn't ask you this. How long ago was that? It was back. It was actually about five years ago. Was that about 2018, somewhere in that time frame? Okay. So yeah. not not during the the current uh, change of ownership. No, that's right. Right. Okay. 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 Got it. So, but I think th I think the important thing is just to illustrate like how how you would take a company like that and analyze it through a job speed on lens and what you would do with yeah. it to try to make it um, uh, a company that's more effective at solving customer problems. I have one question related to qualitative versus quantitative. You know discovery so how do you think about using qualitative interviews versus quantitative methods such as survey for discovery purpose you know yeah sure yeah the qualitative is simply used to gather the inputs that you're going to prioritize so we use qualitative work to gather a complete set of job statements in the case of twitter or in the case of Cordis, we use qualitative to gather a complete set of outcomes associated with restoring blood flow to the artery, right? Mm -hmm. So now that we have that list, then we put it in the survey and we begin the quantitative part. The qualitative part is to, the quali yeah, qualitative part is to uncover what the needs are. The quantitative part is executed to figure out which of those are unmet and to what okay. degree. And for the qualitative part, so like actually interviewing people, you know, like you interview an impressive amount of users uh, for Twitter, but like, yeah. is there a good number of people to interview? Because interviews uh, can be quite time consuming, you know, and uh, yeah. a lot of companies, especially if they are in the early stage, they are kind of like, yeah, interview some people, but do it very quickly, you know? Yeah. I I have lots of experience in this uh, personally. I still do interviews and I love doing it and I have a preferred method uh, and it simplifies uh, this dramatically. And here it is. <laughs> Find a group, two to three subject matter experts, job executors that really stand out in their field. They really know the job to be done. Hire them for about 10 hours two hour increments. And so you get those two to three people together for the first two hours, you fine tune the job statement. Just work on the job statement, make sure you get the job statement stated correctly. Then you move on with the same group of people, same three people. Now you move on to creating the job map, right? And what you're doing is we're building consensus as we go. So this group of people 
are all agree that this is what we're trying to accomplish as I go through the job. Um, and then session three, the next two hours, we work on the outcomes at a granular level for each step. You know, what's the first thing they're trying to accomplish? What are they trying to avoid? I want to minimize the likelihood of entering the side vessel, right? And then the next two hours, same thing. Next two hours, same thing. Until you get all the outcomes captured from those three people. So what you've done is you've invested about 10 hours in interviewing three people, but you have in your possession about 90% of all their needs, all the needs in the market. Mm-hmm. Then you take those that set and you go talk to other people for an hour or so, hour and a half, individual interviews, and just take them through it and ask them for their um, verification of what, you know, is it, are they valid and what's missing? And are they stated in a way that is easily understood and so on? And uh, if you do about five, six more interviews like that, you have a pretty good set of customer outcome statements. If, if you are asked to do this globally, which we often are, like we need a global set of needs, we would then take that set of needs and we would translate it into German or French or whatever. And then we would do some additional interviews in each of those geographies to see um, if there are any other outcomes that are missing. Mm-hmm. And we made, so that may be a few more interviews, but once you've done that, and this is often just for global companies, not a startup, but after you've done that, you can make the claim that this is a set of outcomes, a set of needs that are valid across all geographies. And you do that before you quantify. Okay. This is super interesting. I want to take a step back. When you are interviewing your two, three experts, so what is the process exactly looking like? Because it's like a 10-hour interview. You said there are two steps. Yeah. The first step is the statement part. So I want, you know, like, so that, you know, I'm, I imagine that's the, the statement that you're working on. And then the second part is the outcome. So how right. does that, that look like? Like maybe you can you can give us an example of a recent maybe interview or one that you can talk about. Sure. So yeah, I'll, I'll go for a recent one since it's top of mind. But we worked with a company that's into robotics. I'll just leave it at that. And we spent, we had three people that we interviewed as part of our the team, right? They're subject matter experts in the space. We spent the first hour or so defining the job to be done. Then we went on to the job app. Then we went on to the outcomes. But the way it's done, and this is, we're doing it remotely. We have a uh, interview guide that we show up on the screen. So they're actually watching what we're doing, mm-hmm. right? So we instruct them. So, so let me step back because this is, to me, one of the most important parts of our philosophy. In traditional customer interviews, Oddly enough, neither party knows what input they're trying to collect. So there is no agreed on definition of what a need is, right? So neither party yeah, knows sense. what they're trying to state, right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And it's, it's amazing, right? What are the chances of you coming up with a set of needs if neither party knows what a need is? And, they, and of course, the answer is zero. It's never going to happen. This is why most qualitative research efforts end up with transcripts with a ton of information, but 
a lack of direction of what a customer, the customer's needs are. So we're going to flip that on its head and we're going to say, you know what, we're going to make sure both parties know what a customer need is, right? So we've defined outcomes as these measurable uh, attributes. They have a, a direction of improvement. They have an object of control. They have a contextual clarifier. And we, we've defined what it, an outcome is, right? We have 24 different rules that we use to ensure that the that it's a good statement, right? Now, we don't tell all those rules to the customers, but what we do is we show them as we're collecting statements, we show them on the screen a good statement, right? And they go, oh, okay, so you want us to say things like minimize the time it takes to do this or minimize like that that bad thing happens. And this is one of the main reasons I like using the same two or three people throughout the process is because in the first interview, in the second interview, we're training them to understand what inputs we're looking for. So then we begin working together as a collaborative team to put all the outcome statements together. And they're watching us do it one by one. They're correcting them. They're giving, you know, they're giving us feedback in real time. They're building consensus on each statement in real time. So at the end of these 10 hours, we can say that this set of needs has been validated by this group of experts and they all agree that this is the best structure of these statements and the best describe what they're trying to accomplish. Okay. Okay. How do you find those experts, those free experts? Like, are there criteria that they need to to meet or are they provided by the company, you know? Like yeah. Nine times out of 10 for us, they are provided by the company. The company almost always knows two or three experts. And we work with mainly mid-sized and large companies. But even as a startup, you can go find people who are experts in a space. And if you can't find three, find one, right? If, if A couple of interesting stories. We had two, we were doing a project on spine surgery. We, t we spoke with two spine surgeons for six hours and collected a complete set of outcomes. So that's the kind of thing that you can do. If, if we had one surgeon, we'd, you could spend six hours and collect the set of outcomes. Now, would it be as complete? No, but then you can go do your one-on-one -on -one interviews and validate and refine and add and, and so on, right? Okay. So it's, okay. it's kind of so, like make, make do with what you have, right? But because yeah. people often ask me, you know, how many people do you have to talk to? Well, you could talk to one person if it was the right person who really understood the job exceptionally well and could follow through this kind of exercise. Some people are very process oriented. Some people aren't right. If, if the person you're interviewing is not process oriented, they, they don't think in problem space, then it's going to not go well. <laughs> but in many cases, the experts are process oriented. That's why they're so good at it, right? They've studied the job, right? They, they know what they're trying to achieve and that's what makes them uniquely qualified for the interview process. All right. But sorry, I, I interrupted you. You know, we went sideways with question, but like back to the example of the robotic yeah. company. Yeah. So the robotic company, they, uh, they picked out the three subject matter experts and uh, we set up time over a three week period, uh, two hour sessions, just like I described. 
and went through the exact process I described. You know, the first hour, we're just debating what is the job. And I'm not even sure we got it nailed in the first hour. I, I think we had to come back uh, in the second hour and spend more time on just stating the job. In fact, I know we did because we reviewed, we reviewed the job with management and they questioned it. And we went back to the experts and said, you know, should we refine this or think about it from this angle or that angle? You know, it was, I can't talk too much about the details, but it was, it made an assumption. The initial job implied an assumption that would be incorrect potentially. So we had to modify the job statement to make it as accurate as possible. And we define job statements in a very specific manner too, you know, as a verb, the object of the verb, a contextual clarifier, right? Can you, can like, you make an example of what that looks sure. like? Like restore blood flow to an artery. Right? Okay. That's an example of, of an outcome. That's a job statement. A job statement. Yeah. Or pass on life lessons to children would be okay. a, a job statement, right? So the, it's always a verb, an object of the verb, a contextual clarifier. And the reason okay. for that is you can study statements like that as a process. We're, we're trying to state it as a process, right? So we bring the action to it. What is What are you ultimately trying to achieve in, in, in what context? Because you could say, for example, pass on life lessons with no context, but if you add the context mm -hmm. to children, then we can say it's parents passing on life lessons to children versus, or you could say adults passing on life lessons to children, or it could be people passing on life lessons to other people, right? So by yeah. changing the context, you could change the, the market definition, if you will. Yeah. And do you have people changing the context or like you, you already know like the specific context, you know? Well, in, in most most companies we work with are in markets. They're already they have products, mm -hmm. right? And they're and they're just trying to define their markets or redefine their markets through this lens. And I find this to be true even in startups. If a startup has a product in mind, then they've already uh, assumed the market, right? Because as soon as you have a product in mind, you're assuming there's a group of people trying to get a job done with that product. Right. Mm -hmm. But what we ask companies to do and startups to do is to go back and think through who is going to execute this job and what is the job that they're trying to get done. Right. It's, which is interesting because it's, it's not always the job your product is going to do. In other words, people, you know, products don't have jobs. People have jobs, but startups often make the mistake of saying, Hey, my product can get this job done. That's great, but that may not be the job the customer's trying to get done. That may only be a piece of the job the customer's trying to get done. So when you go to customers, don't ask them, hey, what job does my product do? Ask them, what job are you trying to get done when you use my product, often in conjunction with other products? This is why I said earlier, you know, most products only get part of a job done, and customers are left to cobble together multiple solutions to get the entire job done. And so we got to be careful when we're defining the, the job to be done or the market. And this is why it sometimes takes a few hours, even with the experts, to gain agreement on what the market actually is. Yeah. So you you spend like this time, you know, working on the markets and the definition of the jobs. 
Yeah. Once you have an agreement to the job, uh, what the job is, and I imagine like the agreement is you working with the experts plus align with the leadership of the company that you're working for, or it's just with the experts? Do they have to come to unanimity among the three of them or, or yeah. how does it look like? Yeah, it's really the experts decide what market they're in right? We're there to make sure this, it's stated in a way that follows the rules and it's going to allow us to study it at the outcome level. Okay. And management's going to think about it in a way that assures that their business objectives are going to be met. But that's, mm -hmm. that's really an issue. You know, if it's generally just getting the customers to read <laughs> what is the job that they're trying to get done in, in the best stated way, right? Okay. So, Assuming that you you have discovered the job and there is like a definition for it and an agreement around it, well, what happens next? Well, the second step is then to create the job map, right? So this, we're going into needs discovery, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. instead of just saying, okay, what are all your needs associated with getting the big job done? We want to break it down into little pieces. So we create a job map. As I mentioned, we have a good article in HBR from 2008, the customer-centered innovation map that explains this in good detail. But the reason we're doing this is so we can get a good feel for the steps in the job and prepare for outcome gathering mm -hmm. and keep it compartmentalized. Like in the old days, we didn't do job maps. We would just talk to people about the whole job and they would be all over the place, right? The beginning, the end, yeah. the middle, this, and that. And then we'd have to organize the statements in some order after we've collected a couple hundred statements. And it would take hours and hours to try to make sense of where all the pieces fit together. And over the years, we realized that when people are executing jobs, they're generally going through the same eight steps. The first step is they, they're defining what they're trying to achieve. Then they have to go gather inputs. Then they have to organize those inputs in a way that the job could be executed. Then they generally check everything, confirm it's going to work before they execute. Then they execute the job. They look at the results and make modifications before they conclude. So those are the eight general steps. So we follow that path, that pattern, when we're interviewing people uh, about the job map to make sure we're capturing the elements of that universal job map. So, okay. So once you've done that, then the process is basically concluded for this stage, right? The qualitative phase is process. complete. So now the, the the end of the qualitative phase, you have that list of outcome statements within each job step. Okay. Yeah. And in the rest of the qualitative interviews, do you follow the same steps? Because it's like an hour long. Or are you just looking for validation, meaning you show people, you know, what you, you already have collected and you ask them questions? Yeah. So once we've collected the complete set, fairly complete set of needs with the two or three experts, then we take that list and we show the list to other people and we take them mm -hmm. through it. So we're not starting from scratch. We show them what we have. Okay. We let them verify that what we have is, is correct and understandable and actionable and all that. And we ask them to think through anything that might be missing. Right. So we're, we're kind of filling in gaps or if we see a step and we only have two or three outcomes in it, we may ask people to focus on a particular step to, to make sure we've got it well rounded out with a set of mm -hmm. uh, neat statements. 
okay. And at that point, you're looking for further confirmation and validation before going to the quantitative state statements and then sending out a survey. Okay, clear. Well, that, that's really amazingly interesting. And also, I, I learned myself like a few things that I thought I was doing well, but I wasn't. <laughs> Turns out I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> it, can, it can always get better, right? We're, we're still working it, it, on it, uh, improving. It can always get better. You see, you always learn, always. Uh, it's amazing. A lot of the listeners of the podcast uh, either have a startup and or they're starting, you know, the, like in the, in the ideation phase, etc. And one of the most critical things that, you know, it's... Uh, for them, but also it's part of the framework. It's picking the right market, right? So for startups that are pre, let's say, product market fit, or for founders that are just starting right now, you know, and they're trying to really have a very high level of a solution that they would like to offer and a problem that they would like to solve, but they don't know yet which is their market how do you go about uh, isolating this because this is the most crucial step and if you get this wrong at the beginning then all of the rest is kind of uh, pointless right absolutely it's it's critical that the market selection process is done correctly and so i mentioned this earlier but it, it's important to state that if the founder already has an idea or a technology in mind then they've already assumed a market, right? So this, this becomes important. Uh, so let me start with the, 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 there's four different scenarios. If you have a product in mind, then you're assuming there's a group of people trying to get some job done with that product. And so you, you haven't, you've already selected the market, right? Right. You've picked it. And so what you, what you want to do is verify that it's a good market. So to redefine it as a group of people and a job to be done, and then ask a number of key questions. You want to ask, how big is this group of people trying to get the job done? Is it 30,000 people or is it 300 million people? How frequently do people get the job done? Is it once a year or five times a day? Right. Uh, is the population of job executors growing or shrinking? Are people executing this job highly underserved with current solutions, or are they pretty satisfied with what exists today? Right. You get the general idea? What we're saying here is, you know, you want to pick a group of people and the job to be done that a lot of people are trying to get done that they're not happy with today that would welcome a new solution, right? And if those answers, if they're answered positively, then that would be an attractive market to go after, right? So they can verify, yeah, that, that's a good market. Like parents passing on life lessons to children. There's a lot of parents all around the world who are trying to pass on life lessons to children, right? That constitutes a very large market versus, you know, fighter pilots going on a mission, for example. That's a very small market, right? And comes with its constraints as well. So the, so the first step is to, if you already have an idea, verify that the market you're targeting makes sense. Second thing is, 
you may have a technology in mind, right? So you have AI in mind. All right, well, AI is just a technology that can get a whole bunch of jobs done. So what jobs do you want to get done with AI and who's interested in getting those jobs done? There could be a whole bunch of people, right? It could be marketing people who are trying to write content for blog posts. Uh, it could be authors who are trying to fine tune their, their writing skills. It could, it could be a whole bunch of things. So what you got to do is lay all those out and then pick the one you think is most attractive. Again, based on that kind of criteria that I gave. Another the third possibility is you have a group of people in mind, but that's it. Right? So let's say I do want to target parents, but I don't know with what technology or what job. So we did work with P&G, for example, and we looked at all the jobs parents are trying to get done as it relates to children from ages of zero to two years old and uncovered, I forget the number, 60, 70 different jobs they're trying to get done. And then they had to go through and pick the ones that they thought were most attractive, again, using the criteria that I described. Uh, the fourth scenario is you have nothing in mind. You're wide open. You don't have a group of people in mind. You don't have a technology in mind. You don't have a product in mind. You're willing to go anywhere. That's that's hard. It's, you got to start somewhere. So you're going to have to either pick a group of people or you're going to have to pick a technology or you're going to have to pick a job and then you know, work it through the, the, the same algorithm I described. But those last three scenarios are market selection. The first scenario, as I mentioned, when, you are, when you've already have a product in mind, that's market definition. You're in the market. You got to define the market you picked, right? Because, and it's important to know if you have a product in mind, you've already picked the market. Okay. So yeah. let's make an example. Yep. I, we don't have a product in mind yet, but we have a group and we have a technology. So yeah. technology, let's pick AI because like it's, uh, you know, DOG now, it's the most popular one. And let's say we pick a group of people, product managers. So let's pick AI and product managers. Okay. So look at uh, all the different jobs product managers are trying to get done. So you could go through and say, let's, they're trying to define the markets they serve. They're trying to understand the customer's needs. They're trying to discover segments of customers with different unmet needs. They're trying to figure out which products they should target with at, at each segment. They're trying to figure out if there's gaps in their product portfolio. Right. And I could go on because, of course, we know the space. But so there's all these jobs product managers are trying to get done. And you can pick which one you think AI is going to have the, the greatest influence or the greatest impact, the greatest benefit. So which of those jobs are most important to product managers and most underserved? Okay. Do the, This is the question. Do I pick as the founder or do I go to three experts, let's say, and start to get alignments on the possible jobs. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You want to do the same thing we did with Twitter, right? Go to product managers, yeah. talk to them about all the jobs they're trying to get done, lay them out qualitatively. And then if you want to quantify them to figure out which are the most underserved, do the quantitative research and, and figure that out. Okay. Yeah. So let's say that we have like a list, you know, of jobs that are most pressing for product managers. So one being, I don't know, better communication with their engineering team. One that is one. The other one could be faster 
testing of possible problem solutions so that they can go to market uh, faster, you know? So let's call it like rapid iteration, okay? And then the third one would be, I don't know, um, increasing retention or revenues in, in their particular product, let's say, you know? So we got these three. How do I go about picking one and then marry it to the solution, to the technology that I want to use, which is AI, to solve the problem? Yeah, that's a great question. So... Um, you're not going to know the answer until you get to the outcome level, but we've been doing this with a number of clients recently because they're asking the same exact question. They're figuring out where do we apply AI in our markets? All right. So like you said, there's many jobs that product managers are trying to get done. Um, you've listed three. I would have to say they're not defined as job statements per se, but I get the general areas that you're, you're talking about. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go with just three. Like I, I would talk to product managers and try to get a fairly exhaustive list and say, mm-hmm. you know, here's the 30 jobs we're trying to get done. Right. And make no, don't have any preconceived notions as to which one's the most underserved. Just get your list of 30, go talk to or, or survey 90, 120, 180 product managers and ask them which of those jobs are important to them, but not well satisfied the the way I described before. And now you'll have your prioritized list, right? Now, once you know which ones are most underserved, then you can put uh, the AI filter on and say, okay, is the, which of these underserved jobs could most likely be addressed better with AI? Do they have Mm -hmm. Do they have a heavy information component? Do they have a heavy testing predictability aspect to them that could be addressed through AI, right? So I'll give you an example. You know, we did this years and years ago with bear crop science in the the crop growing space. So we studied uh, farmers who were trying to grow a crop and we captured all the outcomes associated with getting that job done. And about 50 of the 150 outcomes related to information flow, getting the right information at the right time to make decisions that would impact yield ultimately. So no one was satisfying those 50 outcomes. And that became their focal point for what is now known as digital farming. So they, Mm -hmm. they laid on a solution over the seeds and pesticides and herbicides and services and everything else they were already selling where they, another layer of, of offerings that was technology driven companies are trying to do the same thing now with AI, right? So once you get all those outcomes associated with the job that you picked, you can figure out where to apply AI, right? And hand pick the most underserved outcomes that could be addressed with AI. And now you have your AI strategy, just like you can have a service strategy or a product strategy with the same set of data, right? This is why I love okay. jobs to be done, right? Because when you're at the outcome level and you have your 150 outcomes for any job, you can satisfy them any way you want with hardware, software, services, blockchain, AI, internet of things. Pick your technology, right? It's, it's, yeah. it, it's agnostic to technology. It's just telling you where the opportunities are. You as the innovator can choose which group of needs, underserved needs you want to go attack with what technology to create the most value for the customer. 
Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Okay. Things are, are becoming much clearer and we have like a good understanding now of the framework, how it works. Regarding the the outcomes and, and the way you you phrase them and you pick them, is there a particular way or, or things that you see people implement incorrectly in your framework? And this actually can be extended to the entire framework in general, not just the, the outcome. Sure. Yeah, I mean, we see many misuses or misapplications or misdirected uses of, of the approach in, in every step, even the first step, um, or even in the philosophy before you even get to the first step. You know, our view of the, that people buy products to get a job done means that you should focus on studying the job they're trying to get done, not the buying process, right? So not the customer journey. Right. You, you know, like people go through a customer journey, they have to buy a product and set it up and, and learn how to use it and maintain it and upgrade it and all that kind of stuff. But people aren't buying products so they can maintain them and upgrade them. Right. They're buying products to get a job done. And I, I see a lot of applications that go through, that just skip the job to be done completely. They'll go through the buying process. You know, let's talk to people who recently bought our product and figure out the process they went through to buy the product and what they were thinking. So they're not studying the job to be done. They're studying the buying process. Right? Or they're studying the customer journey, not the job to be done. Why, why is it important that you focus on the jobs to be done versus the process, like the, the user journey? And, and what's the place uh, for studying things like the user journey and the, the decision-making process in this framework? If you don't know what your product is yet, there's no reason to define the customer journey. You don't even know what you're selling. It's premature. You don't want to study the buying process because you don't know what you're selling. Let's, let's start by creating a product that gets the job done significantly better than competing solutions. Then worry about the journey because now you, now you know what the product is and what it does. The journey is going to be very different if it has certain technology built in, into it versus something else. The, the message you're going to use for, uh, to go to market is going to be very different depending on what the product does and what unmet needs it addresses. Right? So there is an order in which to do this. Right? First, focus on creating a great product that gets the job done for the job executor. Then worry about the customer journey that they're going to have to go through to get the product that you know now know what it is. And then lastly, market it to the buyer in such a way that communicates the value that they're getting because the end, us end user is getting the job done better and presumably more cheaper, uh, more cheaply as well. Absolutely. And, and I think it's important to state that this doesn't apply just for startup, but I think this applies also for, for companies that already have a product out for, for some time. Yes, ex you know? exactly. It, it applies across the board. It's just a general rule. And that's why I mentioned, you know, just in terms of misapplication, that's just, you know, get, get the philosophy down. So you're focused on the job executor, getting the core job done first. Um, and then, of course, just getting each step of the job executed correctly, using the correct nomenclature for markets. A lot of people don't do that. And using the correct nomenclature for job steps, for outcome statements. A lot of people don't do that. You know, we've spent a lot of time laying out these grammatical structures for very specific reasons, right? To make sure that the statements 
can be communicated in an effective way, that they're actionable, they're useful in ideation, they're helpful for value prop development. Uh, but once you, once you start changing the structure of the statements around, uh, it gets very confusing for everybody. Like we've run tests in quantitative research where we'd have different variations of statements in, in a survey. And if you can only imagine, if, if you introduce 20 variations of statements in a survey, you're going to get, you're introducing variability into the process. And this is why we only have two variations of the statements. We say minimize the time it takes to do X, minimize the likelihood that some bad things happen, right? That's it, right? Because at a high level, you're trying to get the job done better. What does better mean? It means faster, more predictably, higher output throughput, right? So we, we can describe better using those terms and and it becomes easy to capture that way, easy to communicate, easy to prioritize, easy to take action on. When you start improvising, and yeah. uh, then then bad things happen downstream in the process, and you know you, you're not going to know it until you get there. Yeah, I have one last question, Tony. You go through the process of doing the jobs to be done. You uncover and define the jobs and the outcome. And what you uncover, it's not what the leadership wants to hear. Yeah. It contrasts with the strategy that they put in place. It contrasts with the, with the metrics. Basically, it will mean a complete change of direction, what they're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know? So what happens at that point? How do you help reconcile what the users wants with the company objective? Or it can even be that it's a startup and you're serving one part of the jobs to be done, but it's not the most significant. Yeah. And therefore, you see a bigger opportunity somewhere else, but that would mean basically completely reinventing your product, like completely pivot. Yeah. Yeah. And so this happens all the time, right? So do you want to be data-driven or or not? And so, you know, this is why we suggest using ODI before you start developing a product, not after you started developing the product, right? Because we want to mitigate the risk that you're going to have to pivot. So that, that ideally it's done beforehand. If it's not though, so let's take your example where you picked a part of the job that you thought was underserved, but there's other parts of the job that are much more underserved. It doesn't mean you have to pivot necessarily. What it means is let's, let's go after the part of the job, the part of the job you already originally targeted and, and make sure you nail it. Like, let's get that part done better. Mm -hmm. Let's try to at least do a little better than uh, competing solutions. It, 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 maybe we shouldn't have started there, but we're already there. Right. So let's not throw it away. Let's build on it. You know, maybe it's an adjacent job step. That's the most underserved. All right, so V2 goes after that adjacent job step, right? V3 may go after the other job step that is highly underserved. And so what, what it would allow you to do is to think through where you will end up eventually, because you, eventually you want to own the platform that gets the entire job done, right? You may not have picked the right or the best place to start, but if you've already started, You've already started, right? Let's just make the next selection a bit more efficient, right? So V2, again, goes after the most underserved job step, or the, maybe it's an adjacent step. 
and you kind of lay out the plan. Like when you have your job map, you can kind of lay out where, where are you going to go with each version to eventually get the entire job done. That could be a multi-year endeavor, right? That's that's your product roadmap. But I, I would approach it that way. But again, ideally, apply ODI thinking before you start spending money on development so we can yeah. mitigate the risk of, of failure and all the other things that happened to me when we introduced that PC Junior. Yeah, but we, that's the ideal. But we both know that in the real world, <laughs> this yeah. often gets after a few years, actually. Yeah. Well, when you have data too, data really goes a long way. Uh, even with stubborn executives who were, you know, who have some preconceived notions about the market, if you can prove to them that, you know, the opportunities exist elsewhere and you have the data to support it, it's generally far better than the data they have. And you know, if you presented right, you know, you can convince people to to make the right decisions. Absolutely. The other objection that I see very often is that this process requires a lot of time. And for example, this is like one of the hurdles that I that I experienced my, myself, for example, in my career. For this process to be done correctly, it sometimes takes the honesty of saying, okay, we need to take a step back if the product is already existing. And, and when a product manager comes in, you're never the first hire. No. You, you get there and the ball is already rolling, That's right? right. You're usually like in the seed phase, right? Yeah. Maybe pre-series A, seed phase, somewhere there. You get your first product manager hire. And so if you arrive and you start implementing this framework, one of the resistance that I found is that first it takes a lot of on, um, intellectual honesty to recognize this could be better. Yeah. And, and the second part is, okay, we recognize that, but we really need to be very, very fast because like, you know, we are a startup and we need to yeah. push features and the engineers need to have stuff to do. We cannot wait. So how do you go about making this as fast as possible? Sure. So what you want to do is apply the approach. Just as you said, you know, you're, you're well into the product. It's, it's, it's going to be released in six months, right? What you want to do, apply ODI, find the unmet needs uh, that, that are addressed by your product so you can best position your current product as it's defined. Right? So you can do an ODI project. In other words, use the, use the results initially to position the product you've already created in the most favorable light. We help companies do that all the time. Yeah. At the same time, you're collecting the information for V2, right? You're saying, okay, V1 is what it is, right? Let's just position it in a way that will generate the, resonate the, uh, most strongly with customers. But let's look at the V2 information and here's the next set of unmet needs. Let's go here next, right? So you're laying out a roadmap to go beyond where you're currently at. And generally investors like that, uh, as well, especially if you already have some success. It's now, now you're showing them data. You'll say, here's where we are. Uh, we created this. We're going to position it this way. Here's the unmet needs in the market. This will have the best uh, chance of success from a marketing standpoint. And the next version of the product, we're going to go after these outcomes. Here's what we've discovered and so on. So now, you, now you've got a new path for growth. And, and again, you didn't get it right from the start. And, and a lot of companies don't. That's why I, I said, you know, most companies we work with are already in a market. They already have a product and they're just trying to figure out how to grow it, how to make it better, where to go next, what adjacent markets they should look at, and so on. 
yeah absolutely yep. Tony this has been like an amazing conversation I learned uh, so much by talking by talking to you and hear hear about your experience is there a any parting words that, that you have for listeners or places where they can find you? Yeah, I really appreciate that, Sarah. And I, you had some great questions there as well. So thanks for being so well versed in this already. I think it really added a lot to the conversation. But yeah, people can reach me uh, at oldwickatstrategy.com if they want to contact Strategen. That's info at com. If they want to look at our online platform for learning how to do ODI and become certified, that's ODI Pro. You could just Google ODI Pro or go to our website at strategy.com and find it there. But uh, there's plenty of resources out there. There's free books at jobsbedonebook.com. We've been at it a while. There's a lot of good information out there that will help get you started. Tony, really, we will leave for listeners, we will leave all the resources just mentioned and the one that we, we mentioned throughout the episode in the show description and in the show notes. But really, Tony, I want to thank you so much for your generosity and, and for really laying out so clearly what what the framework Jobs to be Done is all about and ODI. That's great. I really hope it makes your audience more successful and makes you more successful as well. Thank you. <laughs> and for listeners, we'll see you on the next episode. Bye. That's all from today's episode. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you find this episode valuable, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or to the Polyweb podcast on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. It will be fantastic if you could leave us a rating, a review, or a comment, as this really helps other listeners find the show. All the resources mentioned in this episode will be linked in the description and in the show notes. See you on the next episode. And if you cannot wait until next week, you can watch this episode right here that relates to some of the things that we talk about in this episode. Bye.